Good morning. Reminds me of the Normie family when we were little. Everywhere we went, it was a big deal. There were six of them, so we were always herding them all over the place. It was a great week in VBS. I got to go over there a few times and just enjoy the activity and be thankful that I'm older. And a uh, lot, a lot of energy this last week. We are on week two of our study uh, uh, from the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth, along with four other books of the Old Testament, were read at the various feasts of Israel. These books were known as the Megaloth or the books of the scroll, and they're arranged in the following order. You had the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, then Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Ruth was read at the, at the uh, Feast of the Harvest because the story took place during the harvest. This is also known as the Feast of Pentecost. And it's interesting to me that this book of Ruth and the celebration of Ruth was on the very day uh, uh, that the church was born. I think there's some linkage there, especially in the redemptive aspects of the book of Ruth and what Christ did and what it meant that the Holy Spirit came upon um, the early church. So Ruth's life was forever changed by her encounter with grace. At our church, we talk about this all the time. We want people to encounter the grace of God, grow in the grace of God, and then become ones who understand they're part of God's means of giving grace uh, to others. And what we're looking at today really is Ruth's encounter of the grace of God. Next week, as we get into the next chapter, we're going to look at what it means that she kind of grew in the understanding of that grace. She grew in abiding and dependence on the Lord. And then by the end of the book, Ruth is giving it away to others. It's, it's an amazing story of going from ruin uh, to redemption. And Ruth, like all examples in the Old Testament, are given for our example. All right? Uh, if you read the New Testament closely, you'll read that it says the Old Testament is there for examples uh, for us. Uh, oftentimes I've been asked by people, what's the, even the, why, why do we even have an Old Testament? Well, because it's part of God's story, for one thing. It helps you to understand the problem of, of sin in Genesis and why, why we need a Savior that came in the New Testament. But also, as God has said, it, it's given for examples so that we can learn vicariously. And the older I get, the more I like to learn vicariously. How about you? I use YouTube a lot. I look it up. Man, people say, how do you do this? Have you tried YouTube yet? That's my wife's favorite saying to me. Just go to YouTube and it'll tell you what to do. You can learn from others, right? And so the, the Old Testament's like this, this whole YouTube thing for us to learn from others and, and, to, and to know what's up about God and about ourselves. So we're to chapter 2 this morning in Ruth. And Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, excuse me, <clears throat> have returned from Moab. They're destitute now. A word could characterize her life. They're ruined when you get to the end of chapter 1. All the men of the family have died. You've got two widowed women in Israel at the time. And it was hard enough to be a, a woman during that time. But to be a widowed woman was devastating. Your life would be ruined. And so they get back to Israel and all the people are excited to see Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. She says, call me Mara. I'm a woman of bitterness. I'm a woman that's been ruined. And so we get to the end of chapter one and we can see what's going on. But, but then in, in, in the middle of all that, all that destruction and despair, you got Ruth. And the story of Ruth is beginning to kind of blossom and unfold. And Ruth will not leave her mother-in-law she says, your people are not my people. Your God is not my God. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you die, I'm going to die. And we see in Ruth some hope bubbling and some redemptive work of God um, 
being uh, put into place. And often God moves mightily in the life of a person that just kind of hangs around where God's at. People will come to me dry sometimes and maybe uh, tired from a various trial or whatever. And my advice to them frequently is it's really simple. Just hang around the people of God right now. Hang around the church. Hang around where God's activity is taking place. Even though you're dry, even though you're feeling disconnected, the best place for you to be is just hanging around. You know why? Eventually, God will get through to you and you'll experience him. And one of the things I appreciate about Ruth is she hung around with her mother-in-law. She just hung around where the things of God were taking place. She didn't let the ruin and despair push her away from God. She hung around God and eventually she encountered grace. Um, so I want us to, to, to start today by saying something out loud together. It's a declaration of faith. Um, our God specializes in redeeming ruined lives, so that's going to show up here on the overhead. And what I want you to do is I want you to say that with me. Our, our God specializes in redeeming ruined lives. Will you say that out loud? Here we go. God specializes in redeeming ruined lives. You had better know that because it's important for you to know that. I'm a story like that. How about you? My life was racked, man, when I, when I ran into Jesus Christ. It was just, I was full of despair. I came from a place where there was a lot of drug usage. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood where there's 13 kids about my age. 11 of them got messed up with drugs bad. Two of us did not. You know why? Born again Jesus. That's what saved us from that destruction. God specializes in wrecking ruined lives. You need to have that message for yourself, and you need to have that message uh, for those around you. And we're going to see now in chapter 2 of Ruth the beginning of redemption, the beginning of this process of restoration. Uh, and, and man, Naomi and Ruth, they have a great relationship, and Ruth is hanging around her mother-in-law. She's hanging in there where she, she should be, and God moves mightily in her life. So let's begin by reading Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Here we go. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So this is kind of an introduction to chapter 2. It's like the, the, the writer wants us to know what's going on, who Boaz is, some of his background, okay? So now we get to the story. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone who, in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. So let me give you the point, and I'm going to explain this. Ruth experienced God's favor. That's another way of saying Ruth experienced God's grace because she embraced him as her God. Ruth experienced the favor of God because she had embraced him as her God. Back in Ruth chapter 1, when Naomi's really full of despair after the death of her husband and the death of her two sons, and she tells her daughter-in-law, just go back to your people, go back to your gods, Ruth makes a declaration there that I think is really indicative of the life change that she was experiencing. She said, I can't go back. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. And she's just saying, I am now a clan of a new tribe. I belong to the Israelites, and your God is my God, and her God is the real God, and he is our God. Amen? 
And so Ruth put herself in this place of experiencing the grace of God. Um, Naomi's people were now her people. Now in Ruth 2, we read how the Lord was directing her steps as she ends up gleaning in Boaz's field. Uh, further on in, 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 in chapter 2, we're going to read in verse 16 how Boaz even told his harvesters, pull some grain out and just leave it on the ground for the girl. I mean, you talk about coming under favor. She came under the favor of Boaz uh, because she hung around the, the people uh, of God. Now, understand something here. I'm a little tangent here. I'm going to tangent all over today, so just be with me, okay? Back in, in the book of, of uh, Leviticus, um, chapter 19, verse 23, the Israelites were told, when you harvest, don't go back and pick up what's left over. Leave it for the poor to glean. So they have something to eat. Because as you were destitute and I showed you favor, they were so continually supposed to show that same kind of uh, favor to those who were destitute. It was to be a reminder of how mightily God had worked in their past to take them from this place of, of destitute a destitute to this place of prosperity. Now, the people weren't doing it. Did you catch that here? You know why, why this didn't work? Because laws don't change people's hearts, do they? Do they? I'm back to that, that thought again. There was this law. God said, I, I want to institute this law. Understand, you do this so that you remember me and you're grateful for me, but the people didn't remember him. That law didn't affect them. And it's really a sad, a sad kind of side commentary that, that you know, Ruth goes into Boaz's field and she finds favor and protection, but she could have gone elsewhere and been beaten up. Or worse than that, who knows? Killed even, okay? So let me ask you this reflection thought. Do you think it was a fluke that Ruth ended up in the field of the relative of Elimelech. Do you think that was a fluke? Do you think it was happenstance? What do you think? No. Say it louder. No. no, no. Let's take this to our lives today now. Do we recognize the hand of God in our lives? Do we give things credit that we shouldn't give credit? Do we give God credit? Do you see, for instance, your spouse as a gift from God? Do you see her or him that way? Do you see your children as a gift from God? Do you encourage your children and do you yourself see siblings as a gift from God? I used to tell my kids when they're really going at it, they're God's gift to you to develop godly character. <laughs> it's true, amen? No matter what, these people are a gift to us. Our families are a gift to us from God for our development into the conformity of Christ's likeness. Do you see your career? Do you see what's going on? Do you see the place that God has planted? Do you see your neighborhood? Do you see the divine nature of God at work in your life? Do you see how you interact with other people in that kind of a perspective? See, I think we don't think this way enough. And what I want to encourage you today, if you, it's a learn from Ruth. There is a divine directing of our steps if we're a follower of Jesus Christ. And when we begin to recognize that, we will live our lives entirely differently. So here's our response to today, to, to this part of Ruth. Do you recognize the hand of God at work in your life? I hope you do. We're going to pray for that right now. And I'm going to pray a little bit differently. I'm going to pray in the first person. So what I want you to do is, is as I pray, put yourself into this prayer. 
It's as though you're speaking to God uh, yourself, okay? And so that's why I'm speaking this way. And let's pray that we begin to really recognize the hand of God at work in our lives. Would you go ahead and bow your heads as I pray? Open my eyes, Lord, to see how much you are at work in my life. Grace me to recognize how much you direct my life and how much you are present in my life, even at this very moment. Grace me to have a thankful heart towards you and realize that even when life doesn't turn out the way that I've planned or that I wish, you're still using all these circumstances to conform me to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. May I live with a keen awareness that you love me, that you love me infinitely more than I can even imagine or understand, that you're presently ordering my steps as I submit to your purposes and as I love you. God, would you just give me this kind of awareness, I pray, in the name of Jesus, your son, amen. There is a story within the story here in Ruth chapter 2. There's this big story, first of all, that we're looking at, and that's this kind of revealing of God's redemptive activity in the life of Ruth through this person, Boaz, as we'll read about and finish up here in a few moments in, uh, at the end of chapter 2. But, but now it's like Ruth goes into this, the book of Ruth, goes into this, this real description of Ruth herself and how her life was so impactful that, that it even impacted a person uh, like Boaz before he meets her. There's this kind of story within the story, and rather than trying to um, say it any other way, I'm just going to say it. it's a story within the story. So I'm going to read to you now uh, a little bit about Ruth here um, herself, beginning in Ruth chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. Listen to this. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is a Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So here's the story within the story, all right? Ruth's life got Boaz's attention and was key to his acceptance of her. So her life was a huge witness. Her willingness to leave her people and to embrace Israel as her new people. Her willingness to leave her former gods and embrace the God of Israel as her God. This spoke reams to Boaz. Her life witnessed to who she was and it got his attention and it was key to his acceptance of her. And I talked about this a bit last week, but our life witness is a huge thing. We never want to 
minimize that. Um, and I want to share with you um, from a book which I left down here because I got so caught up with watching the kids in VBS. I forgot my resource, so I'm going to go on here and grab it. Um, but I've been reading this book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, um, The Improbable Rise of Christianity During the Roman Era. It's about the first 400 years of the church. I mean, it's great reading if you love history. It's small print too, so I'm just going to warn you if you get the book, it's, 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 it's an intense read. But it's, it's, it's interesting in here because it, it, the early church fathers taught so strongly, don't say much, live different. That was a constant kind of teaching from Origen to Tertullian to, to, you know, some of these other ones anyway. It, it, they just taught this. Well, let me share a story of how much to heart these early believers took this idea that we'd live a life entirely differently. Um, there was going to be this uh, big celebration in Carthage, um, one of the leading cities in, in Roman Africa, okay? Um, in, May of 20, uh, in May of 2003, the proconsul scheduled a public event, a, a spectacle, a day of games at their uh, amphitheater to celebrate the birth of Caesar Geta, the son of Caesar, okay? Now, this to them was like a football day. They'd have a big celebration, um, and these were the gains. Uh, in that Roman culture, there was this verticality to position that was really evident, even in how they would do these kind of games. They built this big amphitheater, and, 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 the, and the guys of renown, the, the magistrates and the benefactors and the people with all the money and all that kind of stuff, they had this great big booth up on the top where everybody could see them. They're pronounced. There was a very verticality to the culture. And as you went down through the stands, it was like you went through the classes of people, okay? And then when you got to the arena floor and in the, in the cellars and the, and the underground areas were the gladiators who would, you know, fight each other to the death that day. There were the animals that would be sacrificed and there were the animals that would be used to, to kill then this other class of people called the criminals. All right? And so you had these criminals being put to death and the criminals would run and they'd get all freaked out and cringe and it would show the might and power of Rome as these ones who had done wrong were slain, right? And, and the gladiators would be used to slay them and the animals would be used to slay the criminals. Well, on this particular day, some of those criminals were Christians and they did not react right to how the game was supposed to be played. They didn't respond to the verticality with one another. They were in very much a community kind of relationship with one another. They were so different. And there's two girls I want to talk about because their story is just so, so, uh, I, I read it and I'm just going, oh, wow, you, you read this. It, 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 there's actually a long, there's actually a long work on it. It's called The Passion of Saints, uh, Perpetua, uh, per, uh, Perpetua and Felicitas. Felicitas, okay? Um, at any rate, these two young women are two of the people scheduled to be martyred by animals. And frequently they would do that with the Christian women. They would have them be martyred by the use of an animal. So they had a female cow run them over. Knocked them both out, basically. You've got to understand this to get the background of the story. Perpetua was a woman from high standing. She came from a family that was well known. Uh, Felicitas was a slave. 
Perpetua was 21. Most likely, Felicitas was like 16. Felicitas had just had a baby two days before this. You kind of get in the story here? So these two women get run over by this cow, and they're knocked out. Perpetua wakes up first. She goes over, and she grabs Felicitas and pulls her up. And there was a horizontal type of relationship here that they had never experienced happening right there in that arena. Here's this woman of renown and this slave woman. And this woman gets over there and she pulls her up and they stand upright. They're not cringing with fear. They're not afraid. In fact, they're looking out at the audience as they're being martyred. And you had this culture that was so vertical in their life understanding. Everybody had their position. And if you're a criminal, you're supposed to cringe in fear. You're supposed to run for your lives. Every man, every woman for themselves. But here were these Christians, and they all died this way. They died in community. They died holding each other up. They died standing fast and courageous. They were so different from what they normally experienced in those kind of games. And their life spoke so loudly that it caused a movement to become afoot in that Roman culture in the midst of all this carnage and this brutality. You had these people living so differently that it got something going. It was a life witness that got it going. In fact, they rarely spoke anything. Even when given the chance, the Christians rarely said anything. It was by their life witness that they were going to make their faith known. I think that's Ruth. She lived what she believed. She left her people. She left her gods. She went to a land, a foreign land to her, never been there before, with a mother-in-law, with no husband, no way of making any money, right? So destitute, they had to go glean in the field behind the harvesters. That life spoke to Boaz. So here's our application from Ruth's life story. What are ways that you live differently because you follow Jesus? Let me give you some suggestions today. Because I think one of the effective ways that you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I, beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, are really going to minister to our culture is when we begin to live a different life because we love Jesus Christ. So here are some suggestions for you to consider. God will probably lay something else on your heart, but let him lay it on your heart and begin to live it out. So here's one suggestion. We live in a very angry culture. Would you agree with me on that? I've never gotten flipped off in Brookings in my life until the last couple months, and then it's happened a couple times. I thought, people are just really angry here. So here's one way we can differentiate ourselves. Don't respond to troubles. Don't respond to being mistreated in anger. Don't respond that way. You'd be really different if you're not an angry person. Responding back to what's going on in anger. Do I like what's going on right now? No. Anybody like it? No. Will anger help? No. No. Probably just make you have heart disease. At any rate, you're, uh, this is one that really I, I kind of constantly almost take on as a, as, a, as a life approach. You know, you should be, your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be obtained, but instead made himself a servant even unto death. I'm quoting from Philippians. So what I'm thinking all the time is my attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. He had every right 
to, to expect things from God, but he laid it all down, or from people, I should say. But he laid it all down and, and became a servant even to death. And so a lot of times I tell myself, die to yourself. Because this isn't about you. And so our attitudes need to be the same as Jesus Christ. How about this one? Care about others. Become others-oriented in your approach to life. It's amazing how much better life becomes when you genuinely begin to care about other people. Be aware of people around you. Their body language frequently will tell you something's amiss. You can really begin to engage in a different kind of level with folks. Just become ones who care about others. Here's another suggestion. Desire to live a holy, set-apart life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Become a holy experiment. I'm fond of using that language. Become a holy experiment. Say, God, I'm going to put your ways into practice. I'm going to try to live them out as I can. Holy Spirit, empower me to live my life as a holy experiment for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's one that I think we, church, need to adopt. We got all this sexual issues going on inside and outside the church. Would you agree with me right on that right now? I, I, my heart's broken over all the uh, sexual scandals that are happening in the church all the time that get to too many headlines. So here's something we need to adopt. You, we need to have as a philosophy. We need to begin to view one another as brothers and sisters. Women, you're my sisters. Men, you're my brothers. You are never an object of lust. I will never objectify anyone. As Job has said in the Old Testament, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a young woman lustfully. We need to begin to see each other as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we need to quit objectifying one another and making each other sexual objects. Right? This will differentiate us. This will differentiate us big time. Let me give you one more uh, suggestion here. We live in a culture of anxiety. Shoot, it's so anxious I get anxious. I just get anxious because it's so anxious. You turn to everything, oh, everything's bad. Even the news is anxious. I can't, I can't even watch the weather anymore. It makes me anxious. <laughs> Does anybody follow what I'm saying? I think they think ratings work that way, so we just want to get everybody hyped up and anxious. In Jesus, we're people of peace. My peace I give you, not as the world gives you, says Jesus. Peace I leave with you. I have to pray weekly, multiple times for peace to prevail and not for anxiety to win. We need to become people of peace. Stand out that way. These are some ways our life can become witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And people will begin to wonder, why are you so different? I I experienced this firsthand. I worked for for, um, eight years at the Knoxville plant in southern Iowa for 3M. And when I came here, they gave me... uh, a going away party of all things. At that point, I was a manager of, of, of uh, maintenance. So I was a general manager of maintenance. And so I had a lot of people working. So they gave me uh, this going away thing. And they gave, the, the people close to me knew my Christian values. I mean, I'm not shy about talking about stuff. And, and, uh, and so at the going away, I felt like the Lord was just saying, give a quick word of why you are who you are. And just leave it at that. And so I, I just thanked them for being a great group of men and women to work with. And I said, you know, I, I, love, the, I love Christ and, and I've tried to live for him in the midst of you and, and left it at that. Well, after, after that little speech, 
I had several people come to me and said, I knew you were different. I didn't know why. And I, and I asked, well, what, 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 what are you talking about? They said, one, you never swear. Okay. I don't. I don't swear. Usually. <laughs> but I don't swear. Two, they said, you never, you never got angry at us. And stomped around and made a big fit. And once it, you always looked me in the eye when you talked to me. The other one said, you smiled a lot at us. Huh. And I thought, this is not hard. <laughs> That's what I began to realize. You mean I'm so different because I don't swear, I don't get angry, and I smile and I look at you? Yeah. I think any one of us can do this. Amen? Our world needs that right now. Let's not overcomplicate this. At any rate, let's go back to the main story. We're going to return back to Ruth, okay? We're to Ruth 2, and I'm going to read 13 through 23 now. Um, and this is a, a, more of the redemptive activity of God now in Ruth's life and, and using Boaz to do that. Listen to this. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Man, I don't know about you. Ruth is humble. Isn't he not humble? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. She's encountering God's grace. She's humble. She's teachable. She's malleable. She's receptive. Man, that just speaks so loud to me. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and amounted to about an ephat. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth all brought out and gave her uh, what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Oh, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Other versions of the Bible say kinsman redeemer. I, I, I like that phrase just a little bit better. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed because law never changes a person's heart. <laughs> Sorry, I just added that in there. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. So we see God working here mightily through the provision of Boaz, Ruth encountered her kinsman redeemer. Now, Ruth chapters 3 and 4 will flesh this out a lot more, and I'll leave it uh, for those two chapters we'll get to in the next couple of weeks. But let me give you a definition of kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer, whatever version you want to use there. It means this. It's a relative who had the resources to purchase a deceased relative's land and acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. That's a simple definition of kinsman redeemer. And here's our big takeaway from the story of Ruth today, from the big story, okay? Because Ruth embraced the Lord 
she encountered a kinsman redeemer who could redeem her from ruin. Because Ruth embraced the Lord, she encountered a kinsman redeemer who could redeem her from ruin. Now, I'm going to leave the details of this to the next couple of weeks because it just keeps unfolding in a, in a marvelous way. But this story is illustrative to us of how God works in our lives. The Old Testament is given as, as examples to help illuminate our mind to understand the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they sold the land. They sold this world to the governance and rule of Satan. They gave over what's rightfully God. They gave it over to Satan. God, knowing we needed to be redeemed, bought back, purchased back, unable to do it ourselves, he sent us a near kinsman redeemer. He sent us a relative. He sent us God incarnate. He sent us Jesus Christ. And Jesus came and paid a price we couldn't pay because we couldn't do it. He paid the price of his life to buy us back. And by his blood, we are healed. We are redeemed. We are purchased. We are bought back from the rule and governance of Satan. And now we become who we're meant to become, the children of God. We have his name and we have his blessing and we have the benefits of being children of God. And it's a wonderful, a wonderful story. And, and, and Ruth and, and Boaz, they foreshadow what this looks like so we can see in a picture form what Christ has done for us. It's, it's a marvelous connection. So here's an insight from Ruth chapter 2. Jesus, our relative, God incarnate, God in flesh, has redeemed those who trust him from a life ruined by sin. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Now, each week, I'm using one word I want you to remember. That's a a big word of the day. Today's word is redemption. Today's word is redemption. And it simply means to ransom or purchase out of bondage or obligation. Jesus purchased salvation for those who trust him by paying the price of death on a cross. So that's our word to remember today is is redemption, okay? It just means that you've been purchased. Someone's paid the ransom for you. Christ has paid the ransom for us. Now, I'm going to end with just a little theological thought and then Kyle's going to come up here and we're going to finish with some music. The Bible can be looked at several ways, and it does that. And the story of salvation, especially in what Christ has done, has a multifaceted kind of understanding. So one way you can look at salvation is with a judicial kind of mindset. And we were, we were sentenced to death, but Jesus came and, and, and took upon himself the guilt of our sin, and judicially he paid. Well, Today, and the way we're looking at it as Ruth is that we were enslaved by sin. A ransom needed to be paid for our sin. We're in bondage and we're, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. And, and God then sent a redeemer, a savior, to, to purchase us from that destruction. So that's, that's one of those angles of understanding what we have in Jesus Christ, that he's our redeemer. He's the one who's purchased our salvation. You know, judicially, he's the one who's taken our guilt upon himself so that we could be declared innocent. And God has a way of just giving us all these different phrases so we can get some of the magnitude of what it means to be saved in Christ. And I'm going to stop. So here we go. I'm done. Um, Let's go ahead and, 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 and pray right now. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord God, I want to thank you for the marvelous story of Ruth and all the implications uh, of her story, Lord. Um, thank you that you're our kinsman redeemer, Jesus. I just got to take a moment and thank you. Thank you that even though we sold it all 
and we were in bondage and slaves to sin and death. You came and you take in our lives of ruin, our lives that have been wrecked by sin, and you paid the price of your life. You shed your blood for us. And as we trust in you, we're purchased from a life of ruin and we experience redemption in you, Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful for that today, Lord. And I thank you for the wonderful picture that Ruth paints for us of, of that very thing. And I just want to pray today that we would take away something from the message, whether it be how should my life be lived differently so that it's lived out loud like Ruth was in a way that proclaimed you. Um, you know, what does it mean to be a redeemed person? What does it mean uh, to, to live differently? Anyway, God, I just pray that you would just bless this folk here today. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. And may we live and move and have our being in you. And may we just love you recklessly, Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.